Hey, welcome to the Vast Podcast. We're here with Patrick Miller. Patrick, what's up, man? Thanks for joining the podcast. Oh, man, it's so great to be on here. It's, it's been fun getting to know you, Mike, and I've listened to the podcast. I've enjoyed it. And so it's, it's just an honor to be here and chat about some really important topics. Yeah, same, man. So tell us just a bit about you host a couple of different podcasts. You really do podcast newsletters. Like give us a give our audience a quick overview of, you know, what it is that you do and kind of what the mission behind the whole kind of truth over tribe community is is all about. Yeah, it's a great question. We have, like you said, a number of podcasts and they do all different kinds of things. So we have one called 10 Minute Bible Talks where we're just doing 10 minute devotions. They're really designed for people who have never spent much time in the Bible before. And that, that's actually how we see the internet in general. It's a mission field. It's a place to reach people, to connect with people, to build relationships. And of course, the internet can't be everything in someone's life, but I think it's a it's a great bridge uh, to help people connect between their real everyday life and, and Jesus. And so that's what that podcast does. And we have another one that you just mentioned called Truth Over Tribe. And uh, the goal there is cultural commentary. Uh, we are increasingly living in a culture that uh, is resistant to Christianity. Uh, in fact, I heard someone describe it this way. After Christianity kind of left the scene, you still had this big wash tub full of water left from Christianity, all these kind mm -hmm. of cultural traditions and views of what's it mean to be good and what's it mean to be bad, what's justice and what's injustice, what's right and what's wrong. But slowly over time, we've pulled the plug on the tub and the water's draining out. And now we finally hit the point where there's just no water left in the tub at all. And so, you know, maybe 20 years ago, you could kind of be a go with the flow of the culture kind of person and still mm -hmm. kind of be a Christian and, and kind of follow Jesus because there was some alignment there. But we're increasingly in a place where that's not what we should expect. And unfortunately, that's driving people into like a culture warrior mindset <laughs> where it's mm -hmm. like, I've got to fight the cause. I'm, I'm going to resist by, you know, trolling the, the bad guys out there on Twitter. And, you know, with Truth Over Tribe, we want to take an honest look at what's happening in culture without being trolls. Uh, we, mm -hmm. we want to win people with with love and kindness and generosity, yeah. uh, but we also want to be intellectually serious and, and account for how these big cultural changes really are changing people's lives and are leading to a lack of flourishing. They're, they're destructive. Mm -hmm. And so that's what Truth Over Tribe is all about, is just asking, I think, the tough, spicy questions that everybody's asking and wants to talk about and saying, okay, what's Jesus actually say about this and having a discussion around it? Yeah, that's awesome. And that's what I I've always loved about following you on Twitter is you, you don't shy back from saying, from, from taking a stance on something or commenting on something, but you're always really gracious. Even a couple of weeks ago, uh, I, I tend to be more of a troll on Twitter. <laughs> um, and I always say, you know, Jake's our, my podcast co-host, but he's also my pastor. So, uh, he's not on Twitter. So I'm always kind of glad that, you know, <laughs> that he so doesn't Patrick, see the real you get, I don't get too out of line. You, <laughs> Jake, no. get me out of the but troll think, hole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I did a classic, there's a, a account that you and I have kind of interacted with mm -hmm. back and forth that always tends to get the best of my emotions. And I made kind of a, a snarky, but kind mm. retweet. And a few hours later, Patrick just comes back with like the most gracious but like Thorough. theologically right. fire <laughs> and i was just like yeah what this guy what this guy said <laughs> sign that. but um but on your podcast man you've had what i love about it is you've had a really wide variety of people on there um that i know differ from you theologically and politically oh yeah and you're so gracious to them um is that like something that you've always been passionate about? Is that something that you've had to learn how to do? Because you're very firm uh, in kind of really 
pushing and questions and, and all that kind of stuff, but you're so gracious. How's that something that you um, are able to do? Well, you know, it's funny you say that because part of me actually wants to give credit to the people that we've interviewed. We have been intentional about choosing people who I think can engage in a dialogue and a discourse where there's disagreement, uh, but mm -hmm. but they're not going to feel as though I'm personally attacking you to ask you a tough question. And they're willing to actually reflect on the tough questions and in some cases say, man, that's really good. I don't have an answer to that. And I have to be willing to do the exact same thing as well. To admit, mm -hmm. Gosh, you're, you're asking me a challenging question that I have to think through. I, I don't know where we got this idea that we have to know everything. You know, we're supposed to be like Jesus, but we can't be Jesus. Jesus knows everything. Uh, mm -hmm. I certainly don't. And so it's a real gift to me to be in conversations with people who challenge me, because if I am wrong, that's the only thing that's going to guide me down the path to truth. And so mm -hmm. th that's kind of been our reaction. And again, I think Jesus is the supreme example of this. I mean, he continually was interacting with people who clearly saw the world differently than he did. And he didn't interact with them all exactly the same way. But what we see is that he wasn't afraid to have the conversation. I mean, I, I can't mm -hmm. tell you how many times people have asked me, like, why did you have that person on your podcast? You know, I mm -hmm. like all the other ones, but that one, that one was weird. Yeah. That one was bad. And I'm like, well, because yeah. I want to talk to everyone. And, you know, mm -hmm. if it offends someone that I'm talking to, someone that they disagree with, I, I think Jesus would call us to have thicker skin or maybe more loving skin. Because I think that how else do you build relationships? You have to talk to people who disagree with you. Right. Um, and I'm, I, I think part of that's true for me because that's how I became a Christian. You know, I was having people mm -hmm. in my life when I was 19 who saw the world differently than I saw it, who were willing to say challenging things to me in a loving and gracious and generous way. And so now, you know, God's just asking me to do the same thing towards other people. That's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, we've been trying to get you on the podcast uh, for a while now. We've gone back and forth. You have extensively wrote about sort of Web3 and crypto and NFTs for the Gospel Coalition and Christianity Today. And uh, we'll link to those in the show notes because I actually think it's like a really good for all the fodder out there online, you and uh, I think a couple other guys have written. Yeah, I've co-authored most of so, these things with. Honestly, guys, you probably know more than I do. I, I'm there just to, <laughs> to add a few good words. <laughs> yeah, but um, no, I just appreciate your willingness to talk about anything and everything and bring it back to kind of what it means for us as Christians. But you did an episode recently on March 30th um, called The Demeaning of Marriage in the New York Times. Um, and essentially what you and what's your co-host's name? Keith Simon. Yeah. So you and Keith, what you guys did is you kind of dissected um, a series of articles uh, in the New York Times just cry, to just kind of try and understand. And I, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of those were in the marriage section of the New York Times. So, so all of these right? articles that we dissected were published within the last year in the New York Times. They weren't all entirely okay. in the marriage section, some were in the op-ed mm -hmm. section, some were in the news section. Uh, but, but our main concern was that, you know, we're both readers of the Times and we're like, wow, there's a consistent stream of articles coming out about marriage that are completely redefining what marriage is, that, it, that are mm -hmm. so unrecognizable <laughs> that they even have to explain to the Times readers, this is what this means. I mean, they're using terms and right. ideas that are so foreign, and they've fundamentally even admitted, and this was in the marriage section, that, that one of their goals as a paper is to um, denorm norms and norm things that aren't normal. <laughs> like that's part of what they see as their goal. It's this deconstruction of marriage um, right. and a reconstruction in the image of I, I don't even know what, uh, because it's right. it's bizarre and it's kind of weird. And so we thought, let's just read all these articles and see what comes out of that. And that became the the podcast was just going through those articles. Yeah. Mm. Maybe just give us, um, if you were to just take away two or three like main bullet points from 
kind of what you guys came up with and we'll link to the full episode obviously but um just give us a summary of what you guys found out uh in kind of dissecting those articles well i i, I think it's really interesting i mean I, I'll, I'll read a few of the headlines that, that we did because i think they're just funny um one of them one of my favorite ones was a story called from best friends to platonic spouses uh, and in that article, <laughs> they're talking about a new trend of people who are friends becoming married so that they can manage each other's finances, each other's legal responsibilities, um, but also live together and give each other companionship. And on one level, you know, there's nothing wrong with friends trying to have a deep friendship if you're not married, uh, walking alongside each other and encouraging. Mm -hmm. like, I, have, I mean, what, what problem would I have with that? But why mm -hmm. in the world would you call a sexless marriage marriage? Why in the right. world would you call like, <laughs> of course, I want my spouse to be my closest friend, but I know that like my best friend isn't my spouse. Those are easy things. And what's hilarious in it is like to, to justify, I mean, this is the New York Times. They say all the news that's fit to print. That's their slogan. And in my mind, right. news is stuff that is happening widely across the culture or important current mm -hmm. events. And it's not, mm -hmm. it's not picking these like bizarre corners of the universe and turning it into a story. And <laughs> the article, it's hilarious. They go, you know, a lot of people don't know about this, but there are some Reddit forums, which suggests that yeah, it might I was be gonna a ask about more that. widely yeah. practiced. And I'm like, Reddit, are you, have you been on Reddit? Like it, right. the only place worse than Reddit is 4chan. I mean, this is not a yeah. place to go to like find good examples of how the world is functioning. Mm -hmm. And it was so mm -hmm. weird. I mean, they literally had to define terms for their own audience. Um, and so again, I'm just asking like, well, why do we feel the need to redefine marriage in this fashion? What, why, why do friends need to be married? Why, why can't they just be friends? What's the, what's the, the animating principle behind this? Hmm. Man, I did. Yeah. Well, I was about to say, I didn't even realize best friends having more of a marriage relationship was a thing, but I guess what you're saying is it's, it's actually not really a thing. <laughs> no, it's got my point. Saying it's a thing. I mean, you guys are in LA. Do you know anybody in a platonic marriage? No. <laughs> I, are you guys in a platonic marriage? Be honest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes it feels that way. No. Um, I could see though, like, um, I wonder if it's going to be one of those things where it sounds ridiculous now, but in 10 years, it's like, it's the logical conclusion of what we've done in redefining what is a marriage mm -hmm. um, and in even, you know, what is gender. Mm -hmm. I, is that kind of where the train could go? I mean, what do you think? You know, I, I think that's a great question. And I, I also think, I, I feel like it's all these converging lines and this is just one small bizarre expression of it. You've got the converging, one line is uh, the, the narrowing of love where, you know, even 50 years ago, we had a conception of filial love, right? So love that you might express between your family, there's loyalty there, right? You can even have a form of filial love, like for your nation and your people, your kins group, right? You had erotic love, which is, of course, supposed to be housed in marriage, love that expresses itself sexually in a very unique and special way. You had, you had friendship, you know, love, <laughs> love that friend shared. But now it seems like the only form of love that, that we're willing to call love is increasingly erotic love or, or something that's defined by marriage. And so, so that's like one stream. I think the other stream that we see is, is self-expressive individualism, which is this notion mm -hmm. that uh, the most important thing for me in my life is to be true to myself, to be authentic to myself, and to express that uh, in my world. And you are oppressing me if you do not uh, affirm that self-expression. Mm -hmm. And so if I want to be in a marriage with my best friend, you must affirm it you you have no business trying to ask the question, well, what is marriage? 
You know, mm-hmm. GK Chesterton has this exactly. great story where he talks about going out and finding a fence in his yard. <laughs> you know, he must have had a lot of property. He hadn't seen this fence. He gets to this fence, it's a big stone fence. You know, this is in England, so not 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 a wire fence like here. And and he thinks, I want to tear this fence down. I don't want it here. Uh, but then he stops and he goes, well, wait a second. This is a big stone fence. Someone put a lot of time putting this thing up. Maybe they had a reason for it, you know? Maybe they were keeping right. out predators. Maybe this is actually a property line I didn't know about. And so he says, I have a, I have to ask myself a question when I get to the fence. Do I just tear it down without understanding it? Or do I go and seek? Do I ask the question, is there a purpose for the fence being there, right? Is the fence there just to cage me in? Or is the fence there for the flourishing of my property and my family? And that's what's happening with marriage is, is we're just tearing it down. We, we, we've, we've completely deconstructed it. I mean, if, if you can get married to your best friend, marriage has no meaning. This is why you're mm-hmm. seeing in like, you know, New York Magazine articles coming out about polygamy, totally normalizing having multiple partners. I mean, mm-hmm. 10 years from now, it's going to be you can marry your shoe, you can marry your dog. And I'm not right. trying to be like people think like, this guy's insane. He's going, it's like, no, th- this is actually the direction we're it's going. It's logical. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not a slippery log- slope. It's not what? I said, it's not a slippery slope. You always get accused of being on a slippery slope. And I'm like, this right. isn't. Yeah. In, in 2010, I remember we were having arguments about, you know, gay marriage. And my, my mm-hmm, buddy said, yeah. I'm like, hey, if we go this direction, it's going to lead to polygamy. It's going to lead to sodomy. Yeah. It's going to lead to mm-hmm. all kinds of weird forms of marriage we've never even thought about before. And he's like, you're slippery sloping me. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, well, right. dude, here we are. And it's already happening. Right. And it's being normalized. Yeah. Mm. Or it is a slippery slope, and it, that just is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it actually, it actually has been that. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of people, um, like voices that I'll listen to or books that I'll read, will they'll trace this back to um, uh, the elimination of of uh, or or the institution of no fault divorce, mm. um, and that being a moment where America redefined what is a family, what is a marriage. Um. Do you see that as having any bearing? Is that kind of like where the slippery slope began? Yeah, I mean, I feel like everybody has a different point that they kind of go to, and it's a constellation. Sure. You know, and when you're so, talking history, it's like, where do you want to begin? Yeah, so it's like you can go to no fault divorce. If you want to press it back even further, you can go to contraception and how that changed the nature of sex and the attachment of sex to mm-hmm. childbearing. Um, you, you could pull forward from that and go up to, you know, the 1990s where you have these early cases dealing with some of the um, debates around gay marriage. And, and essentially marriage is described by one justice as a self-expression. That That's how he, you, you, are, you should be free to love whoever you want to love. Um, and you can bring that up to the present to, you know, Obergefell v. Hodges and, and that Supreme Court case where gay marriage is justified. So like it's all these different points, I think we can, we can go back to and, and kind of draw it up into the present. Again, my concern here is not, I think people hear this and they think, man, you're just trying to, you know, oppress these people who just want to be happy. Like they just Mm -hmm. want to have a loving Mm -hmm. relationship and okay, you don't like that they call it marriage, but like, is it actually hurting you? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, like why why are you so bothered by this? And, and, you know, I think, I think where I would push back on that is again, it goes back to the fence thing. Look, if marriage is meaningless, like if it's Mm -hmm. totally meaningless, then you're right. Like I should just shut up and sit down and not talk about it. But if there's a purpose to marriage, if it is, and this is a wild idea, the fundamental building block of human civilization, like throw out the Bible. You don't even need the Bible. It is the fundamental building block of human civilization Mm -hmm. going back for millennia. Might it serve a purpose? And might we regret a hundred years from now, you know, destroying, deconstructing this thing that literally has organized society for millennia. I mean, like Mm -hmm. just, just from like a wisdom standpoint, maybe we should slow down 
and think about if this is going to be good for for civil flourishing for 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 an entire mm-hmm. people group or if this is going to create environments that are incredibly destabilized for children and, that, and that's where i really start pressing in the people yes. who are affected by these lies and i will call them lies are people mm-hmm. who are in poverty the people who mm-hmm. are hurt by this I, I was talking to a classic marxist just the other day who's written some books and she's like look <laughs> the reason why I'm angry about this stuff that we're talking about is because it's hurting people who are in the working class. It's hurting people who are in mm. poverty. The vast majority of the most elite people in our country, you're talking about people who have, you know, they're, they're, they have college educations. If you are the child of a college educated person, you have an 80% chance of living with your mom and your dad, your biological mom and dad. And that just mm-hmm. tells us that the elites who are writing these stories aren't living them out. They're not in platonic mm. friendships. They're not, right. one of the other stories here is like divorce is an ad- radical act of self-love. They're not having divorces. They're not living that. Wow. Why? Because they know that's not how it works. They might not know it mentally. So they get to virtue signal and be the good guys who are so enlightened and they're, they're welcoming progress. And the only people who are hurt are those who are most in need, who need families to keep them stabilized because they don't even have anything to help them get back up once they fall. Unlike those elites who would have family members or other people's like, that's what right. gets me really fired up about this is we're hurting the most needful people. Mm. Mm-hmm. Can you connect those dots for us a little bit more yeah. clearly? H- how does, uh, how does the deconstruction of the family, how does that negatively impact the poor? Well, so it, it has to go to statistics, right? And looking at the percentage of people who are living in families with you know, one parent uh, with one biological parent, uh, looking at stories of children who, you know, what are the stats in terms of like, what, what are the things that, that lead a child to uh, be most likely to end up in prison? And a lot of these things are around these destabilized families. It's coming in familial environments where there's divorce, where you're living with a single parent. These are the things that, that lead people uh, to be in constant cycles of poverty. In fact, I mean, this is the crazy thing. If you want to know the number one thing to get someone out of poverty that they need, you just give them this one thing and there's a good chance they might actually rise out of poverty. It's living with your biological mom and dad. That's it. Mm-hmm. That, that's all you need. Uh, but the problem is when you have these, again, elites communicating these ideas that any way you want to do family works and the people who are imbibing that believe it and trust with it and run with it. And by the way, those same elites create institutions that allow you to kind of function without a family, whether that's a welfare state or whatever else. You, you are somehow now enabled to live a life outside of your family. And I just, you know, again, I'm asking the question, when you look at the stats, again, you don't even need to be a Christian. When you look at the stats and you see how important families are for the long-term success of children, maybe we should care about marriage. Like maybe this is right. not what's best for kids. And maybe the people who are most harmed are the kids who are in these poor environments where divorce is running rampant and where these lies are really taking root. That's one of those things that I feel like is not part of the conversation is like the rights of children when it comes to all this stuff. Oh, yeah. You're asking the, the answering the question, like, what is a family? We are now in a place where we can define that uh, in with a lot of different scenarios. Mm-hmm. A family could be uh, two dads with adopted children. Uh, a family could be two moms where one of them was artificially inseminated and carried a pregnancy and and mm-hmm. gave birth to a child and the other mom is not biologically mm-hmm. related to the kid but is that child's mom. A family could be uh, potentially uh, more than two parents and their child. Mm-hmm. I, I think, and you might know the data on this, um, Patrick, but I, I think that's actually happened. I think I read an article last year about a what do you even call it? A thruple in 
Yeah, so there's a, there's a great article yeah. in New York Magazine by an author named Andrew Solomon, who I absolutely love because he's one of those guys uh, who, who is so stinking honest, right? Like he, he, he's highly, highly progressive, but he takes his views to the end. <laughs> he does, right. he doesn't he's, lie he's about intellectually them. honest. He's yeah. so honest. And so I, lo- I would love to talk to him sometime. Um, but he wrote an article about polygamy and, and he writes about the whole range of it, right? So you kind of have like patriarchal polygamy that's practiced in, in some uh, Mormon circles. I'm not, I'm not saying that's the normative thing for Mormons, but there are certainly some circles. So he does that. Mm-hmm. And he talks about kind of this like secular progressive polygamy, which is kind of what you're saying. And it's almost this like, you know, three is better than one approach. Um, and you have some mm-hmm. people where it's like, we're committed for our life with this three or four people. Other times it's like this rotating door. And he notices that there's a big difference, by the way, for the kids who are in the 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 stable three parent family versus like the rotating door, you know, three or four parent family. But once you read these people's stories, and I'm not trying to be mean, but once you start hearing their their hardships and what they're going through, you begin to realize the, their experience is also really deeply interlaced with a lot of mental illness, with a lot of like trauma. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what, again, that, that's one of my problems here is for a lot of people who go through these really hard things in their family, it's also interwoven with a lot of hurt. The hard thing mm-hmm. that I, I can't speak to is everything that you just described you know, a family with two moms or a family with two dads or, you know, three parents. We, if all someone cares about is like the pragmatic, practical, they're not asking the Bible questions like what's it mean to be faithful. They just want the, well, guess what? We're at the beginning of this experiment. We just haven't had enough data to be able to conclusively say, it does that affect a children adversely? Um, instead, we're just throwing children into the fire and saying, hey, we haven't done this, you know, literally ever in human civilization, but we've already, mm-hmm. you know, wrecked enough lives with divorce. Let's go ahead and just try another family experiment and see how that one works out for you all. And it, we'll see what the results are. I, I really don't know. I'm not trying to make the point that it's going to go bad. I, I don't I don't know what it's going to be. Oh, well, absolutely. We'll go bad. I'll make that point. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it's, it's going to be a disaster. I, there's a book that I read last year called Them Before Us um, that uh, it had quite a bit of data on this type of thing. Hmm. Um, Interesting. And it's, uh, and, and uh, quite a number of testimonies from children who grew up in these um, abnormal scenarios. Um, and it doesn't look great. Their, their primary point that they're making, though, is in all of the conversation around the rights of the adult, the right to marry, hmm. the right to... Uh, uh, to care for children, there is no conversation around what is the right of the child. Yes. Does the child, are we even considering what is the right of a kid to yeah. uh, grow up in a family that is comprised of a dad and a mom? And it, it gets into some pretty like difficult conversation territory when it comes to um, uh, the breakthroughs of science and technology with how we can bring pregnancy about mm. apart from a biological mom and dad. And are we considering the rights of children in those scenarios as well? No, and it's, it's so critical. I mean, th- this is, this is a crazy stat and this just shows like, it, it's not, we, we have decoupled sex from children and, and what followed from that was a decoupling of marriage from children. In other words, I don't need to be married to, to have my child. Like we can do this co-parenting thing. And, and here's the deal. The language of co-parenting, it, it, that's for the parents. That's not for the kids. In fact, there's a lot of studies that show it's a lot harder for a kid to have divorced parents when the parents, those divorced parents get along. <laughs> uh, and it mm. kind of makes sense logically. It's like, mom and dad, why couldn't you fix, like, don't, 
How, how right. could you not figure this out? It just creates more questions. So well? It's like you need to tell them why this was so hard. But the co-parenting's for you so you can feel good about your life. Like I haven't ruined my kids' lives. See, we get along well. We're really good friends. And I'm not saying like go fight with your divorced you know, spouse. That's not my point here. I'm just, again, it's going to your point. But this is a crazy stat. Um, this uh, It was a Gallup poll and they asked this question. Is it very important for couples with children to legally marry? In 2006. Is it very important with couples for couples with children to legally marry. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Like, hey, you have children and you're not mm -hmm. married. Should you get married? Mm -hmm. In 2006, 49% of Americans said yes. So about mm -hmm. 50%. By the way, there's three answers. It was yes, kind of, and no. Okay. And 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 only 23% said no. So still the vast majority of Americans say, yeah, you know, marriage should stay pretty attached <laughs> to, to, to children. Okay. That's 2006. 2020, only 29% of Americans say that they should get married if they have children. Wow. Wow. And 40% say it doesn't matter at all. So wow. we flip-flop numbers. That's a massive change in a very short period Yeah, of time. I mean, we're talking like 17 years. It's, it's an insane mm -hmm. drop. And here's the deal. This isn't just happening outside the church. The, the biggest drops were inside of the church. 65% of churchgoers in 2006 said yes. Only 45% said yes in 2020. That's a 20-point oh drop amongst churchgoers who are saying, look, it's not that important. And we've seen the exact same things, even about marriage. Uh, they asked the question, should couples uh, who want to spend the rest of their lives together marry? And again, we dropped 2006, 54% say, yeah, you should get married. In 2020, only 38% say yes. And 36% say no. You love each other? Ah, don't get married. Don't even worry about it. And this is the part right. that drives me nuts about the deconstruction of marriage. It's not just that it's hurting children. It's also that it, it feels childish. When my son is watching my daughter play with her tambourine, she's like shaking it around, doing her dance thing, having fun. He's like, I want the tambo. He starts screaming and crying, give me the tambo, give me the tambo. And Iris, she's ignoring him, but he keeps yelling. And so finally she gives him the tambo and he shakes it two times and throws it behind him, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, he didn't want the tambourine. He just didn't want her to have the tambourine. And that's what I feel like with marriage right now. It's like, this is this institution that humans have had for all of life and you have again, people in these elite progressive institutions who are deconstructing it and they're arguing, you need to give this to everyone. But the minute they get it, they just throw it behind them. Uh, I didn't really want it. I just didn't want you to have it. I'm like, mm -hmm. if you don't want marriage, that's fine. You can, you can call your platonic marriage or whatever else it is that you want to have out there. You can call it your throuple, whatever it is. You can have those things, right? Just let, I actually want the tambo. Like I'm here to play the tambo. I care about the tambo. So would you just let me define it since I actually hear about it and you really don't care about it? Would you stop telling me not to have it? It's childish. And, and again, mm -hmm. like that's, that, it, that if, I mean, I'm clearly getting frustrated, but it frustrates me because I, <laughs> I, care, I care about this institution because I have friends and family members and a community and I've seen how flourishing comes out of flourishing mm -hmm. families and how when people mm -hmm. follow this lie that following your heart is going to lead you to whoever is most happy and that leads you down the path of adultery and divorce and all these other things and the hardship that causes with your marriage and with your kids. I mean, man, it's heartbreaking. I don't want to see people do it, but I see it happen over and over and over again. What do you think are the... Um, I heard you reference like expressive individualism earlier, assuming that you've read some Charles Taylor or, um, yeah. uh, we're, we're big fans of Carl Truman. Mm -hmm. Um, but what do you think are like the underlying ideas that, mm. what did people have to believe was true 
before we could arrive at some of these conclusions that we're arriving today. Yeah, so that those are true. <laughs> we were talking about the genealogy of ideas or, you know, like, did this start with no-fault divorce? Did this start with, right. you know, uh, birth control in the 50s? Like, at what point does this begin? I, I, l- let me run us back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Yeah, <laughs> we'll go back to the, <laughs> to the late 1700s, okay? And it always comes back to Rousseau. It always does, comes right? back to Rousseau, okay? Now, I, I, I'm, I'm not just throwing him out because he's a philosopher guy. I want, I want to juxtapose two stories that, 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 that describe a fundamental difference that had to happen. Okay. Uh, Augustine, who I'm a huge fan of, so we're even going, you know, let's go mm-hmm. back to the late 400s now. Sorry, mm-hmm. let's go back to the early 400s now. Early and, 400s. Um, he, 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 in his confessions, tells the story of how when he was a, a teenager, he went into a peach or, no, a pear vineyard, and he's, he's pulling pears, he's stealing pears with all of his buddies that night. And at the time, he felt terribly guilty about it. You know, he knew what he was doing was wrong. Um, and, and he left, and, and this left this impression on him where he said, there's something wrong with me. There's something deep down that is fundamentally wrong with my heart that has to be fixed. That's why I stole the pears. And it seems so inconsequential to us. Like, okay, dude, you just stole some pears. Like this affected him for the rest of his life. It's the moment when he realizes I have a problem. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau in, in his book, which is also titled The Confessions, probably not accidentally, um, he has a very similar incident, except he's stealing asparagus because I guess that's a thing in France. Why would someone steal asparagus, by the way? Anyways, <laughs> he's got some buddies and they convince him. Let's At least steal, steal something worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, get the pears. I mean, those are so much better. Uh, yeah. So he steals these asparagus with his buddies. And when he comes back, he draws a totally different conclusion. Rather than saying there's something wrong inside of my heart, like there's something wrong with me, he says there's something wrong with society. My friends peer pressured me. Society is a cage that is forcing me right. to make these destructive decisions. I would have never chosen to steal because I'm pure on my own. By myself, I would never have done that. But society put this cage on me. And so, and so what, what a good society does is it, is it, is it unlocks the cage right? It frees you from the cage that you can be true to the, the true pure self. Whereas Augustine said, no, me and myself, I am fallen and I need to be in some senses, uh, brought in by not, not a cage, but by the, the law of God to, to mm-hmm. shape me into the right kind of person. Right. And so he, he saw it just like practicing the piano. It's like, if I want to play Mozart, I, I have to, I have to discipline myself. I have to play my scales. I have to learn all these uh, things I can do with my fingers. And eventually over time, I'm going to be able to play Mozart, but it's only through the discipline. It's only by setting those laws of practice upon myself that I can become the kind of person who can play Mozart. And that's how Augustine saw what God did through grace in his life. Mm -hmm. He was training him to become a different kind of person, right? So now we're beginning to see the fundamental differences. Rousseau says the goal of society is to free me to be true to myself because the true me is a good thing. Never mind the fact that he had tons of children by women who were married to other men and he would just throw them into orphanages and ignore them and say that's the state's job to go take care of them, which sounds a lot like the stuff we're talking about right now. But that's the genealogy of this. It's just a fundamental question of do you trust yourself? Are you fundamentally on your own totally good? Or is there something wrong that needs to be changed? And it is a, it is a society's job, is, is it to shape you into a good and virtuous person, which is what the family, by the way, is designed to do, <laughs> shape children into good, virtuous, productive citizens who can add to their community, hopefully by the grace and power of God, right? I'm not doing some sort of weird works righteousness thing. It's God working through the grace of the family to do that. Mm-hmm. Or is the goal of the family to train you to be true to yourself? In which case, your family's only job is to sit down and affirm whatever you want. And if you're a mm-hmm. parent who says today, you know what? I don't love your dad anymore, so I'm sorry, but I'm going to follow myself. And so now you've got these kids who've got a divorce, and they're justifying their mom, saying, well, you know, mom's being true to herself, and so I'm happy for mom. Like, dude, 
yeah, you can be you can be as self-expressive as you want, but someone else is gonna have to be selfless, and it's gonna be the ten-year-old in the room. Jeez. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess it comes down to that the whole notion of um I I mean to put it most simply, it's just doing what feels good. Yeah. <laughs> and if and and doing what you think is gonna feel good. If you think what's gonna make you feel better about yourself is uh, being legally allowed to marry, or if you think what's going to make you feel better about yourself is uh, remaking family in your own terms, mm-hmm. um, then by all means, people are being granted permission to do it. Um, and it's totally destructive. And then it turns out that it didn't actually make us feel better, you know, um, and there are there are real victims in the process. I think too, like to your point of like the tambourine, right? Like there is this very real victimization mindset that permeates our society and everybody's oppressed, you know, unless they're a straight white Christian male. And cause that's kind of like the top of the intersectionality pyramid, uh, pyramid. Um, and, uh, oh, I forgot cis straight white cis Christian mm-hmm. male. Mm-hmm. Um, so And because of that, it's kind of like this game of, uh, how do I like, how do I rob from what seems to be traditional Mm -hmm. so that there's a a destabilization of what they see as power? Well, there's totally, Um, I mean, you have to think like there are people who are are running the full gambit here, right? You have, you have well-meaning people who just think I'm being nice to people. I'm trying to let them do what makes them feel happy and feel best about themselves to, Mm -hmm. you know, full bore cynics who understand that the only way to topple that pyramid that you're describing is to hollow out every institution, which they see as Mm -hmm. upholding it. That's the only way you're Mm going to move forward. And so there's really a programmatic effort to deconstruct every institution. And now we're getting down to the family and families are just being hollowed out as a place for self-expression, right? And so now you can understand why, you know, people will essentially tell someone like, like if you've got a trans kid and your parents don't agree with, with what you're doing, like you have to go do what's called a found family where, where you go and you find a family of people who are going to support you for who you are. And they're your true family. Why? Mm-hmm. Because they, 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 they support your self-expression. Now that tells mm-hmm. you what you think family is for. Family is for self-expression. Here's the deal. If I self-expressed myself and my family, maybe just like a twisted evil dude, I would be a terrible dad. Like mm-hmm. I'd be yelling at my kids. I'd be cussing at them. I'd be, you know, just marching around like Hitler all the time. Like I have to resist myself <laughs> mm-hmm. and I have to say, mm-hmm. Jesus, please help me because I, on my own, I'm, I'm Augustine. I want to steal the pears. I want to do the bad thing. I need you to rein me in. And, and my role as father in the institution is actually shaping me into a better person because it's reining me in in ways I wouldn't be reined in. I'm so grateful that God's forced this, you know, uh, some people will call it a cage. I would call it uh, uh, this freedom. This, this, it's actual freedom. I, I'm not free to do whatever I want. I'm free to become the person I want to be, who I think well, God it's like the belief, be. if there's something objectively moral and objectively right, you can either view that as oppressing you or you can view that as, as liberating you. Mm-hmm. And that, I guess that is the key difference between the Augustinian approach and the, uh, the Rousseau approach is do I see the external thing as something to uh, find freedom in adhering to or as something that actually is uh, holding me back? And obviously the Christian ideals, we find freedom in that restraint. Yeah, and it's funny because that, that actually goes, in my opinion, fundamentally to the idea of 
what marriage is in and of itself. Um, again, back to the New York Times in their wedding section, there was this one of the headlines says the wedding section asks what it means to be committed. And they talked about how in their section, they're going to stop focusing as much on marriages and they're going to start focusing on what they called mini vows. And mini vows are these tiny little mini commitments that people kind of make to each other in life. So it's like, <laughs> it's like little love stories or, you know, it's like, you know, I, I don't know, it's New York and it's COVID. And so no one's getting married, I, you know, so maybe that's part of what's driving it. But this mm -hmm. is post COVID. And they're kind of still saying like, this is the direction we're going. And they even admit, like, again, we're trying to denorm the norms. That's that's part of the goals. We're trying to show other kinds of relationships. Mm. But here's, here's the fundamental fact of marriage. By getting married, I, I don't say, hey, uh, until you stop making me happy, the, that's when I'm in a part. It's, it's until death do us part right? Mm -hmm. It is a fundamentally okay. radical commitment where I give of myself and I say, you spouse, my wife, you are more important to me than I am to myself. And I believe that by submitting myself to you, wife, by laying down my interests to you, wife, by putting your interests first, that by giving all these things up, we will experience a deeper, richer freedom in our relationship. Because we will know that our relationship is not based on performance. You will know that my love for you is not based on how well you're performing for me. Uh, whether that's sexual performance or that's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, moral performance, or that's how she takes care, like whatever it is, it's not a performance-based relationship. It is a commitment-based relationship where you can feel mm -hmm. safe and secure because you know I'm going to love you no matter what. And the freedom you get in that safety and that security of knowing I will never leave you and that I get knowing that you will never leave me, we will become truer, deeper persons in the process. So you can not only be more honest and more naked, both emotionally, physically, all those things with one another, mm -hmm. but I think, again, can be formed in the sort of people who choose selflessness before selfishness, whose basic level impulses is not always self-expression, but instead self-giving. And so I love this institution and I love the ways it, it actually takes away my freedom. I mean, what a gift. I would be mm -hmm. a bad person. I would be a worse person. I shouldn't say bad person. I'd be mm -hmm. a worse person. Me personally, I'm not saying if you're not married, but I would be a worse person without mm -hmm. my marriage um, because it's been the, the thing in my life that has forced me to be selfless more than anything else, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not, again, my point isn't that if you're not married, you're, you're going to be selfish. God's got different things in each of our lives that are going to train that, but that's what it's been for me. And so again, I think it just comes back to the fundamentals of what is a marriage? Well, it's interesting, right? Going back to like, what's the, what is the thing that, that people are trying to therapize, you know, for those, for the random Reddit people who are engaging in platonic marriage, mm -hmm. what's the thing that they're trying, what's the itch that they're trying to scratch? Mm -hmm. Um, and it is interesting to me that, uh, the new Testament sets forth the role of the church when it comes to the, the bettering of self. Um, mm -hmm. now it doesn't sound like to me, that's the goal of these platonic marriages that it's not like self-sacrifice and bettering self. Um, but the new Testament does set forth a vision for, uh, uh, if marriage is not an option for a person, um, then simply by belonging to the body of Christ, there's, um, uh, a sanctification process that happens. That is so true. And I love what you're saying because it turns the mirror back on people like us who are, who are in the church. And just reminds us that we've also bought into the lie that the only valid form of love is erotic love, is love that can be expressed inside of the marriage. We've built entire churches around family ministries, which seem to assume that your only real family are the children who are born to you and the people you make commitments with. But of course, the New Testament uses family language to describe absolutely everybody. 
We're all in a family together. So the church should be the place where someone goes who is single, and maybe they're single for a whole litany of reasons, right? But they're single, and and, and their singleness is affirmed and celebrated as a gift from God that they can use for God's purposes and God's mission in the world. And they shouldn't feel like they're outside of families because they're a part of our family's lives, of by our meaning the church, the collective family of the church bringing them in. And I think if the church had a more robust support for single people, whether they're single after getting a divorce or they're single because they never got married, they're single because they struggle with same-sex attraction, whatever the reason is that's keeping them single, they have a place inside the church to call home, a place inside the church to say, this is my family. And that doesn't sound like a fake term, like it's real. And if the church did Mm -hmm. that, again, I think we'd have even more legs to walk on in this marriage debate, right? Because we'd be living out something richer and deeper and truer in in our collective uh, gathering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we got about six minutes, but I want to, uh, something that I, and, you know, we've been talking about kind of where the culture is going with this. Um, I, I still can't get past, and I guess I'm most alarmed by those really what seems like sudden change in statistics from church going Christians yeah. and what their, their belief is. Mm-hmm. Um, so the three of us are, you know, local church people, local church leaders. Um, I, I still can't get past how quickly mm-hmm. that has dropped, that has dropped and that has changed. So I guess like in closing, maybe let's talk about why do we think that's happened and how important is it for us or church leaders mm-hmm. to do our part to reverse that trend? Because it, it is feeling like a very slippery slope, mm-hmm. not just in culture, but in our churches. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what does it look like to kind of acknowledge where we were, where we are? Why has it gotten there? Mm-hmm. Um, and then what role do not just church leaders, but anyone who is actively involved in the family of God in a church community to um, try and slow down or reverse that slippery slope? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Adam, I can go micro and macro and I'll be really brief. Um, so I think micro, uh, the role of, of uh, leadership teams and pastors is to lay down doctrine. Um, and so if we're not laying down doctrine in regards to these subjects, then uh, we can't assume that people are going to arrive in biblical conclusions. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. never more apparent to me than it was a few years ago when we sat down with a whole bunch of young adults in our church mm-hmm. and I was flabbergasted mm-hmm. <laughs> at the... Uh, at how unbiblical their uh, where they had landed was, mm-hmm. and it, it wasn't because we had ever taught anything unbiblical. It's because we just didn't really talk about the subject that much. Because I had kind of been assuming, mm-hmm. oh, and I remember Mike saying to me like, "Bro, I I don't think you can safely assume this anymore." <laughs> so I think on a, on a micro level, there's that. On a macro level, um, I I do think it comes into a conversation on ideology, and. I think what a lot of Christians are naive to is that they don't recognize that uh, uh, there is a belief in interlocking systems of oppression and uh, there's a real agenda to, as you said, to hollow out and to dismantle those systems, whether those systems be marriage, whatever they are, uh, so that um, these things come crumbling down. And I think sometimes Christians buy into uh, one expression of an ideology, uh, not realizing that they're participating in something that has a vested political interest mm-hmm. in uh, bringing the whole thing down. Mm. 
I, I agree with everything you're, you're saying. You know, I, I used to lead a 20s ministry and I remember a small group leader coming to me like, dude, we've been reading through the book of Acts in our small group and uh, it comes out that Saul is Paul. And no one in my group knew that Saul was Paul. And so their minds are like <laughs> all being blown. Like, whoa, wait a second. We've heard of Paul before. This dude trying to kill people, that's Paul. You know, and it was actually this really like beautiful and moving experience. Like that should be our reaction. Like when Saul becomes Paul, <laughs> that it's 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 deeply and profoundly transforming. But it just shows how biblically illiterate people are. Um, they're mm -hmm. intelligent, smart people who are very, very biblically illiterate. And the simple truth is that probably goes across the board. You know, as a leader, I'm probably more biblically illiterate than leaders were 50 years ago, right? And so it's mm -hmm. something that we really have yeah. to wrestle with and, and deal with. So I, I really agree with you there. You know, if I if I could turn the mirror on us for a second, I, I think that we millennials are are now reaping the, the wild oats that our uh, Christian ancestors sowed, especially in evangelicalism. What I mean when I say that is that evangelicalism has, and I'm not trying to throw stones at Billy Graham, but it has since the days of Billy Graham been a very self-expressive religion, right? Billy Graham's mm -hmm. fundamental question was about your personal salvation. Now, I care mm -hmm. about your personal salvation. I'm not trying to minimize it, but the entire idea of, of us as a people being formed together collectively, the entire idea of that got, got, got lost. And then you move forward and really you start getting into these church marketing things that are happening where, you know, people are, they're church shopping. That's a metaphor we use for it, where the basically, you know, what I'm doing is I'm a consumer looking for services and goods. And so I'm going to go shop mm -hmm. around at different churches to find who can meet my church mm -hmm. needs, my church goods thing. And so again, that sets you up as a, as a, as a person, as, as a consumer. Not as someone who's seeking to be shaped and formed, but as someone who's seeking to have your, your ears tickled, right? To hear what you want to hear, to have your personal needs net. And so you come up to the present and now we've got all these millennials leading or beginning to lead institutions. And, and we, we're just dealing with the reality that everybody in our church, ourselves included, me included, we're highly consumeristic. We're highly mm -hmm. self-focused. We do value self-expression, right? And so, and then throw on top of that social media <laughs> and mm -hmm. this the simple reality that people are being discipled by their phones. I mean, the amount of time you spend on your phone, I, I promise is 20X what you spend consuming spiritual content. And by the way, it's all being powered by algorithms that are sending you to troll farms. And it's my favorite statistic on Twitter, right. 19 out of the top 20 Facebook pages, Christian Facebook pages, are run by foreign troll farms, <laughs> you know, then those are the people, oh my those are the people discipling our people. That's an MIT report. That's not crazy wonky guy on the podcast making stuff up. It's real. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so it's just like, at the end of the day, we've inherited, oh we've inherited that's like, our culture and what do we do? But yeah. And that's like, that's like, you know, the, you know, Christian American Patriot account, right? Like every account that's I'm like, that was, that was the finding. Was it, you said 19 out of 20. Right. They're not real. They're, just, they're literally of the not top real. 20. There was, there was a whole strategy around this. What they would do was they would go to the Christian Facebook pages that they saw being successful and they would find their most popular po posts and they would literally copy and paste those posts onto those posts onto their page, send money behind it to get it to the followers of the other page. Those people <laughs> would start following this page run by Iran or China or Afghan. Like, wow. I mean, we're talking about foreign agents who do not have your best interest if you are a American English speaker in mind. <laughs> and, and then what they would do once they got people to like the page and start engaging was it'd be like 98% of it is just kind of this bland Christianese, you know, nonsense mm -hmm. that you'd be like, okay, here's today's Bible verse with, you know, a sunset picture or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. But then, you know, 2% of the time it's insanity. 
It's mm. just out there stuff. But because you believe in this page and you see all this great stuff they do, you think it must be true. And, and as they've looked into it, the, the goal is clear. They're trying to destabilize de democracy. They're trying to destabilize our mm -hmm. most important institutions. And so they're targeting Christians. That's who they mm -hmm. want. Mm -hmm. And so again, that's wow. just one little piece in the puzzle. But it's, you've, got, you've got a self-expressive church, self-focused salvation, uh, a social media you know, uh, eco ecologies that's around you that you can't mm -hmm. resist. And I mean, we're, we're really up a Creek. I don't, I don't have answers. <laughs> I feel the problems. <laughs> Gosh, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. This but that's been, why what um, you guys are doing is so important. You know, mm -hmm. we, the way to resist is by, in my opinion, creating a grassroots network networks, of Christian mm -hmm. content creators who are knocking loudly against these, you know, bad international actors who are resisting the popular mm -hmm. secular media organizations that are failing us, who are speaking truth and love and generosity. And that's how we're going to bring some people back. I'm really convinced that when we, you know, are in the new creation, we ask people, hey, how'd you meet Jesus? There's going to be people 50 years ago, it's like Billy Graham crusade, 30 years ago, you know, college ministry crew, and like this time, it's going to be, I started listening to, you know, this podcast by Vast Media, and that's what changed my life, right? That's mm -hmm. what started making me think differently. And of course, that's one little piece in the puzzle. Um, but I do think it's going to play a major role because people are being atomized. They're individualized. What they get on their phone might be their deepest relationship. That might be you two. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that might be me mm -hmm. on my podcast. Mm -hmm. And we need to mm -hmm. embrace that, not, not be scared of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, that's really good. That's really good. Patrick, thanks for um, thanks for taking the time to hang with us today and talk. Um, if you're listening and you want to kind of go deeper into this, we'll link to that podcast episode in the show notes. Um, and, uh, you know, you guys dive dive much deeper into it. But, man, thanks for giving us the overview and, and thanks for taking the time. We really, uh, really appreciate it and love what you guys are doing. Uh, it's great being on the show. Great talking with you guys. I love what you're doing. I hope uh, God continues to use it and people's lives and their hearts to help them trust Jesus more, love him more deeply. And uh, I, I know it's changing people's hearts and minds. So I'm, I'm excited about it. Keep going. Awesome, man. Appreciate Same you. To you. Thank you. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Yeah.